with me to Matthew chapter 23. We're going to be looking at the end of this chapter and the beginning of the next. C.S. Lewis wrote in his book, The Four Loves. He's known for a lot of books. This one is a lesser-known book on the four Greek words for love in the New Testament. Uh, It's a book, like I said, titled Four Loves. He writes this, To love at all is to be vulnerable. Love anything, and your heart will be wrung and possibly broken. If you want to be sure to keep your heart intact... You must give your heart to no one, not even an animal. Wrap it carefully around with hobbies and luxuries. Avoid entanglements. Lock it up safely in a casket of your selfishness. And in that casket, safe, dark, motionless, airless, It will not change. It will not be broken. In fact, it will become unbreakable, impenetrable, irredeemable. The only place outside of heaven where your heart can be safe, perfectly safe from the danger of love, is hell, he writes. We all want to protect our hearts from hurt. Hurt from friends and neighbors. Hurt from spouses. Hurt from parents. We even get, want to protect our hearts from being hurt by the changing culture around us. In one way, many of us protect our hearts is, as Lewis put it, to lock them up safely in a casket. And in that casket, if you do that, your heart will become unbreakable, impenetrable, calcified. Your heart will become hard. This morning I want to challenge us all, as I've been challenged this week, to open up that casket, however dangerous that might seem to you, and allow the air of the gospel to begin to tenderize your heart again. Look with me at Matthew 23, starting in verse 37. We read in God's word, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often I would gather your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings and you were not willing. See, your house is left to you desolate. For I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Jesus left the temple 
and was going away when his disciples came to point out to him the buildings of the temple. But he answered them, You see all these, do you not? Truly I say to you, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. Father God, I ask you to send your spirit in this room today that you will pry open those caskets and fill it with your gospel. In Jesus' name, amen. 1 John 4, 1 tells us, Do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. Scripture encourages us to test the spirits in in a couple ways. But certainly he, he asks us to test the spirits theologically and in their character. Test these teachers theologically and look at their character. Jesus, as we've seen in chapter 22, has just given the Pharisees a failing grade theologically. If you recall, the Pharisees were coming to him with these three questions to entrap him. Questions on taxes and of the resurrection, and of the greatest commandment. And he condemned them, saying, you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. F. Then he proceeds to give them an F in character in 23, as we saw last week, proclaiming some of the harshest words to them, uttering hypocrites again and again. They preach, but they do not practice. They tie heavy loads on others and are unwilling to lift them themselves. They try to look good outwardly, but inwardly are vapid. Wanting the praise of men more than the praise of God. He condemns them with those sevenfold woes like we saw last week. Character. F. And on the one hand, this condemnation is instructive to us, as we saw last week. Instructive to our hearts and our lives in that we are to have a zeal for God and His precious gospel. We are to have that righteous indignation when we see the gospel being distorted and and false teachers teaching it. There's room for righteous indignation in our lives. An anger towards culture for how it is running in the opposite direction of what God says. But on the other hand, we have to be careful. And, our, and, and the text today is giving us that other hand. Our hearts are so wily, so deceitful, says Jeremiah 17.9. It can easily turn a proper zeal, a proper righteous indignation, easily turn it into bitterness and resentment, unrighteous anger. It can easily turn it into a hard, calcified heart. And if we see here, Just look at Jesus' reaction. That is instructive for us. 
That's not what we see here is a hard and calcified heart, even after some of the harshest words he's ever said in Scripture. We see a tender heart. After all the hurt he has endured from his children Israel, he still has a soft heart. How does he do that? He begs the question that we ask ourselves. How do we keep the zeal of the Lord, yet at the same time, a soft heart? How do we do that? Well, Jesus shows us first by allowing sin to break our heart. To allow sin to break our heart. James Boyce wrote, We've all known people who like to cry woe and call down wrath on sinners. But no one is ready to speak about judgment who has not first shed tears for those who are affected. You're not ready for woe until you shed tears. And that's what we see here. We all want to talk about the destruction of the temple and the desolation, but first we have to look at verse 37. I think there's, there's a little bit more than just pathos in Jesus' words, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem. I think they're, they're pregnant. The doublets like this are used throughout Scripture to show intimacy mixed with sorrow. Think of in Luke 10 when, when, when Jesus was with Martha and Mary and, she, and, and Martha was working, working, working and he goes, Oh, Martha, Martha, you are worried and upset about many things but the only one thing is needed. Or when Peter turns, he turns to Peter in the upper room and says, Peter, Peter, Satan has asked to sift you like wheat. Loving Peter, yet knowing exactly what he's going to go and do and deny him. In each instance, Jesus is showing love, yet sorrow over their misguided intentions. That's what Jesus is doing here. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. Oh, brothers and sisters, please don't read the Bible in a vacuum. Don't read it as just black words on white paper. You have to feel Jesus' heart here. Luke even tells us that he was weeping while saying this. Tears flowing down his face. We all know this kind of pain, don't we? We all know it. An unrequited love. A friend who slowly doesn't return our phone calls wants out of our life. A dear church member who slowly drifts off even though we we go after them, they slowly drift away and leave. We all even know this in the American culture that is slowly drifting, drifting, drifting. And likewise, Israel has broken Jesus' heart. My kids have picked up a saying my mother used to say. You know, when, when, a, when a hurt word is said, they say, oh, you've hurt me in my heart. 
kind of say lightheartedly. But I think it's a, it's a way of stating the truth, yet not putting your heart in a casket. Does that make sense? This is what Jesus is doing here. Israel has hurt him in his heart. And instead of just leaving it at, at woes, right? Which we think, boy, he is perfectly righteous in doing. Just leave it there, Jesus. That's what our hearts say. Why did he do this? Why did the Holy Spirit have this preserved? He admits his pain at being spurned. He's hurt, but he's not hard. How about you today? Do you feel just angry when people sin against you? Do you just want to leave it at the woes? Do you feel sorrow over people that support abortion? Do you feel sorrow over that? Do you lament people that want to teach our kids at kindergarten that they can be a different gender? Do you sorrow over that? Or do you just woe over it? Have you wept not tears of anger, but sorrow and lament at the direction the culture is headed? If not, you're not ready to speak judgment if you've not first shed tears of sorrow. That's Jesus' example here. Brothers and sisters, you have wept if you have wept at the sins of others, have you wept at the sins of others? And then humbly searched your own hearts for those same seeds of corruption. Because that's how you stay soft. That's how you stay soft. You don't stop at the woes. As a matter of fact, you start with the weeping. You stay soft by looking at, not just looking at the sin out there, but searching yourself for those same seeds. Because they're there. Even though you might not even know it. At the turn of the 20th century, the world's most distinguished astronomer, Sir Percival Lowell, was certain there were canals on Mars. Lowell spent the better part of his life squinting into an eyepiece of a gigantic telescope in Arizona, mapping out these canals on Mars in detail. He was convinced that canals were proof of intelligent life on Mars, and even water. He was so eminent, so respected, that Lowell's observation gained pretty much worldwide acceptance. Even I grew up, and maybe some of you grew up, hearing that there are these canals on Mars, right? Yet now, because of, now, because we've been there, we know that there are no canals on Mars. There never were. How could Lowell have seen canals and been so convinced? 
because Lowell suffered from a rare eye disease that made him see the blood vessels in the back of his eyes. The Martian canals he saw were nothing more than the bulging veins in the back of his eyebrows. Today, the disease is known as Lowell's syndrome. Brothers and sisters, you want to stay soft? You want your hearts to be tenderized? You want to open up the casket and let some gospel air in? You need to realize that you and I have spiritual Lowell's syndrome. What we see in the world is actually in us. Without the constraining and sanctifying power of the Holy Spirit, we would not be any different than those people we point fingers at. Do you want to be able to say with tears in your eyes, Oh, America, America? Then you need to realize the bulging veins in the back of your vision. The log in your own eye, as it said earlier in Matthew. You need to accept how sinful each one of us is and how much we have been forgiven. That leads us to the second way we're instructed to say, stop, say, stop, say, stay soft. And that is understand the mercy you have been granted. Understand the mercy you have been granted. Look at verse 37 again. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how often would I have gathered your children together as hens, as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, but you were not willing, he says. That simile here is, is a simile from nature, where the, the hen would call out, would cluck out to the chicks, her chicks, when, he, when they saw a, a circling vulture or, or some kind of danger, and the hens would run, know that sound, and run back to their mother, and the mother would spread out the wings, and the chicks would hide underneath. It's a wonderful picture. That's what Jesus says he would have done and he had done over and over again with Israel. He made loud clucking sounds throughout redemptive history, didn't he? Warning them of the danger of unfaithfulness even back when he gave it to them. That sermon of Deuteronomy that Moses gave in chapter 28, it it lays it out right there. If you are faithful, then blessings. These wonderful things will be yours. If you remain under my care and faithful to me and listen when I cluck and come to me, blessings. But if if I call out to you and you stay out there and you run in the opposite direction, thinking you can do it, thinking your way is better. If you do that, then dearth and drought, deportation, even death, curses. This is what will happen to you. The Lord beckons them to return again and again. He sends prophet after prophet. That's what he's alluding at here. 
I sent prophet after prophet after prophet. This is me saying, come back underneath my wings. You're being unfaithful. Come back. Return to me. Yet Israel continually turned away. Turned away right at the beginning at Sinai. Turned away in the wilderness. Turned away in the promised land. Turned away king after king after king after king. Yet, God extends mercy again and again. I hope you can you have that lens of the Old Testament, brothers and sisters. I really do. I hope you don't open up your, your the two-thirds of your Bible that is the Old Testament and just think and have the lens of God's wrath. If so, I think you have the wrong lens. Because there is as much mercy as there is wrath there extended. Have you ever considered the sheer amount of mercy that God had to patiently give them on a daily basis? Depending on what date you give Exodus 600 or 800 years of mercy. Forgiving their wandering, their idolatry, their child sacrifice, their pagan distorted worship. that Aaron even read about today in Malachi. Amazing amount of mercy extended to Israel. Eight times in the Old Testament. There's actually a theme of mercy in the Old Testament. Eight times this same refrain is given. The Lord, the Lord, the merciful and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands, and forgiving their wickedness, sin, and rebellion. If you, if you like, that's the theme of the Old Testament. And how we stay soft-hearted is to make it our theme as well. Mark Batterson in his book, If, he writes in Lamentations 3.22, we read, His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. The word new there in Hebrew, is hadas. It means never before experienced. Today's mercy is different from yesterday's mercy and is different from the day before's mercy and the day before. It's new every morning. Just as the seasonal flu vaccine changes year to year, God's mercy changes day to day, he writes. It's a new strain of mercy. Why? Because we didn't sin today the way we did yesterday. And then he writes, try this little exercise. Figure out how old you are. Not in years, but in days. That's the sum total of different kinds of mercy that you've received life to date. By the time you're 21, you've experienced 7,665 different types of mercy. When you hit midlife, that number is 14,600. By the time you reach retirement at 65, God has mercied you over 23,725 times. 23,725 unique mercies given you. Unique, 
forgivenesses given you. That's worth meditating on. It's worth pausing and thinking about the sheer magnitude of God's mercy. You see, the more mercy you realize God has given you, the softer your heart will become. The bigger the debt you realize you have been forgiven, the softer your heart will become. That's part of the gospel air that we need to pry open that casket and let in. That's what Jesus was trying to teach Simon, or Simon the Pharisee that day many years ago in Luke chapter 7. You remember the story. Jesus is dining at a Pharisee's house and suddenly a known prostitute bursts in and she's carrying this alabaster jar of perfume and she breaks the perfume and she pours it on his feet and she falls at his feet and she's weeping and she's taking her long hair and she's drying Jesus' feet with her hair. And, and the Pharisee is just incensed that a rabbi would let such a sinner even touch him. And Jesus, this is part of his divinity, that he, he didn't give up, his total knowledge of everything, looks into Simon's heart, sees this judgment, and he asks a question. He actually tells a story. Two men owed money to a certain money lender. One, 500 denarii. The other, 50 denarii. Neither of them had money to pay him back. And he canceled the debts of both. And he asked Simon, who loves more? Simon replies, I suppose the one with the bigger debt. Then he turns towards the woman and he says to Simon the Pharisee, Do you see this woman? I came into your house. and You did not, did not give me water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You did not give me a kiss, but this woman from the time I entered has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not put oil on my head, but she poured oil, uh, poured perfume on my feet. Therefore, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven, for she loved much. He who has been forgiven little, loves little. He who has been forgiven much, loves much. Let me ask you a question this morning. Have you been forgiven little or much? Honestly, I was looking at my own heart this week. I think I'm a pretty good guy. I don't need forgiveness for that much. Little. I need to understand my heart more. I need to pry open that casket and let this gospel air in. How about you this morning? Do you realize what debt you were forgiven in Jesus? Have you been mercied much or little? Another way to ask it is, how central is the gospel in your life? How often a day do you think of the gospel? How often in each day 
does your mind wander to what you've been forgiven? It's convicting for me. Convicting. Do you realize what he went through to live a perfect life? He was fully human, brothers and sisters. That was hard. As hard as it is for you to resist sin, it was as hard for him. And he did it because he loved you. He put himself, Galatians 3, under the law to redeem you. Do you realize the anguish he went through to bear your sins on the cross? Do you realize that? All the whipping and mocking and pain of the cross. Why is that, why is that made such a big deal over and over and over again in each of the Gospels? And we heard it once, just leave it out of the rest. We got it. I think he wants us to understand the real penalty for sin. It's ugly, and it ends in death. Jesus hung dead on the cross to show us what the wages of sin really looked like in all its brazen ugliness. That's what he went through for us so that we can be forgiven. Freed from the power and penalty of sin. Let me ask it again. Have you been forgiven little or much? How you answer that question will tenderize your heart. Or it'll keep the casket closed. Lastly, in order to keep our hearts soft, we need to leave the judgment to the Lord. Leave the judgment to the Lord. Voice again, no one is ready to speak about judgment who has first not shed tears for those who are affected. Jesus has shed tears. And now he speaks judgment. We see that in verses 38. See, your house is left to you desolate. He goes on to prophesy that the temple will be razed to the ground, not one stone upon another in the first couple verses of chapter 24. Complete and utter judgment. Now, in the context of Matthew, this is the point in, in chapter 23, the sevenfold woes showing the end of the rabbinical structure, the temple destroyed showing the end of the old covenant. Judgment. That's what eventually happens to all people who are unfaithful, who reject God, who refuse to come back when he clocks, come back. All who eschew the gospel. Judgment from God. We are certainly to have a zeal for the Lord, but we do not sit in that seat of judgment. We don't sit there. Judgment is God's singular and sole responsibility. We have to leave it to Him if we are to remain soft-hearted to our people, to culture. But the trouble is, our flesh loves judgment. We love it. Our flesh leans into that. Our flesh encourages that. Go sit in that seat. 
You're right to say those things and to feel those things and to harbor those things. Our flesh, in our flesh, we desire to avenge, to retaliate, to get even, to hurt back, to seek revenge. It feels good to make those snarky comments that just kind of poke the person. It feels good to dismiss someone out of your life. That feels good to me. That's something that I do really well. I don't need that person in my life. Boy, what a great pastoral heart I have. It feels good to resist forgiveness. I'm not going to forgive them. I've done enough. Can't do it anymore. Feels good to say that. It feels good to gossip and slander about character. It feels good to ostracize somebody from a friend group. It feels good to sue our enemies. That's why we love to sue. It feels good to find little ways to make their life difficult. And each time we do these little judgmental things, each time we sit in that seat that we are not supposed to sit in, we're putting our hearts in that safe, dark, airless casket. And they they become harder and harder. That's why we're told so lovingly in Romans 12, Beloved, he starts it out, Beloved. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. Part of staying soft-hearted is having a confidence that what God has just told us will happen. The house will become desolate. There will be no stone upon stone. Part of staying soft is knowing that God's judgment will come. Justice will be served. The scales of balance will be equaled. But not by you, but by God. D.L. Moody once said, to say, I forgive you but not forget, is to bury the hatchet with a handle sticking out of the ground so you can grasp it the minute you want it. We have to learn not to grasp that handle of judgment anytime we want it. can't remember who I was talking to, but someone told me about the movie The Revenant. I'd never seen the, this movie. Maybe you have. It stars Leonardo DiCaprio. And it tells the apparent true story of Hugh Glass. He was a a furrier back in the 1800s who was out trapping while he was attacked by a grizzly bear. Uh, uh, Apparently a a serious attack and he was bloodied and left for dead. His friends who were with him, friends, left him for dead and actually came back and killed his son in his very sight. According to the film's version of the story, Glass slowly heals, all the while contemplating his revenge, and then drags himself 80 miles through the winter and hunts down and kills these men. According to film blogger Michael Punk, the real historical story, Glass travels all that way, and ends up forgiving the guys. 
Why did Hollywood change that? Because forgiveness is anticlimactic. Forgiveness doesn't feed our flesh. Puke writes, forgiveness is too boring for Hollywood. It is understandable that Glass would want to avenge the death of his son in his own betrayal. Who would really want to forgive in that situation? Those men deserve to die, he writes. And nothing is more compelling for us than vengeance. Forgiveness on the big screen, he ends, is apparently no match for retaliation. It's just too anticlimactic. You see, what is true for Hollywood should not be true for the regenerate believer. Forgiveness is not anticlimactic. Forgiveness is the pinnacle of the climax. I mean, just think about when, when we read those seven sayings from the cross on Good Friday, when we read that one where he looks down at them mocking him. And he says, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. That's the climax. And that should be the climax for you and for me in our relationships, in our view of the culture. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. How can we expect them to know their right from their left, their right from their wrong? That's why we go out. You want to keep your heart tender. You want to pry open the casket and let a little gospel air in. Let God sit on the seat of judgment. You and me, let's go out and offer the hope of the gospel. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for this text and how you have instructed our hearts this morning. We thank you that you have given us a way to keep our hearts tender through the gospel. And I pray, Holy Spirit, that as we resist you prying open those caskets and letting some gospel air in, that you will soften us and allow that to happen, however painful and however stubborn we are. Help us, Lord. Do the work that we cannot. In Jesus' name, amen.